Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen. Thanks, Kevin. I don't know, I kind of envision that like that's what God's voice sounds like. When you hear Kevin read God's word, if you just sprinkled in a little bit of a Hebrew accent, maybe that's what God sounds like. I am so grateful that you are here. It's good to be together. It's good to worship together. I see most of you have your Bibles open already. If you don't have a Bible, they're always available in the lobby on your way in. Go ahead and turn to this passage with me, Luke chapter 12, and we're going to start in just a few minutes in verse 13. Now, we are in a study that's taking us all the way through the story of Jesus from the gospel of Luke. And while we've been in this study for several months, I'm hearing the murmuring among the uh, crowd that we are taking our sweet old time making our way through. But we're going to pick up the pace a little bit uh, because we have a long way to go, a lot of ground still to cover before Jesus gets to Jerusalem, this final journey he's on. I want to preface it because we always say that when we preach, uh, preach here at Eastside, when we sit under God's word, it's exegetical teaching that we just walk th straight through 
the story as it unfolds. So we're going to skip ahead from time to time, but what I noticed as I was preparing this study several months ago is that on this final journey, Jesus is on this final journey to Jerusalem. He knows that his time is limited. And so over and over, he repeats the same kind of themes time and time again to the crowd so that it'll sink in so that they can follow Jesus. So you'll see for the sake of time, we're just going to kind of cover each theme once. Uh, you'll see the way the sermon goes today and you'll realize we're not skipping the hard parts because God... Our goal as we follow along with Jesus on this journey is that we would be encouraged, we would be inspired, and we would be instructed to follow Jesus in our life. So that gave me enough time to turn with me to Luke chapter 12, verse 13. We're picking up in the middle of chapter 12, and I love how the story starts. It says, someone in the crowd, someone we don't know, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them, but he said to him, Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And I love the way the story starts because it's like ridiculous on its face. Just envision this. Jesus is traveling from town to town, teaching the people the things of the kingdom of God. He's on his way to Jerusalem, to the cross, to die on a cross for our sins. And he's teaching them these high-level things about the kingdom of God. In fact, if we were to look back, last week he taught on prayer. Then he teaches them on spiritual warfare. He teaches them how to be a light in dark places. He uh, explains the difference between religion of the Pharisees and the relationship with God. He he talks about all kinds of these things, and somewhere from someone from somewhere in the back yells out, Teacher, Jesus, Rabbi, whatever, Lord, tell my brother to give me more of my inheritance. And that seems pretty random. It's like he's yelling out, like, Jesus, I know you're teaching these high things of the kingdom of God, but if you could just tell my brother to give me more of the money mom left for me, that would be nice. And you're like, what? Like, where did this come from? That's totally off topic. That's not about prayer or spiritual warfare or being a light in dark places. Like, and here's the thing. Before we pile on this guy, really before we even get into the sermon, I found this so convicting because I think we are prone to do the same thing. That we are prone to come to Jesus when he's trying to teach us the things of the kingdom of God and project onto Jesus what we hope he would say. Like, here's what I mean. Like, when we come to Jesus and whatever he's teaching, we come to him, to his word, with this idea, like, I really hope Jesus will say what I want him to say. It'd be like if you sit here in these very comfortable chairs at his side, and, and I'm up here just, like, preaching the best sermon you've ever heard. That's like every Sunday, right? Like, there's Jesus preaching and then, no, way down here. But nonetheless, like preaching the things of the kingdom of God, just trying to share with you what God is trying to say. And you're sitting there in your seat thinking, so-and-so really needs to hear this. In fact, I know where this story goes. I kind of hope Adam will look over at this couple over here and just pointing generically and say, they got to stop sleeping together. Or that person really should stop drinking and, you know, Explain to them, Adam, a tithe is 10%. Don't worry, I explain that later in today's sermon. 10% or, or that couple over there, like they're not even serving. And like as we listen to what Jesus is trying to say, like what races through our mind is like all the things we want Jesus to say to someone else. You ever been there? Don't raise your hand. 
If you're married, your spouse is there right now. They're thinking this would be nice if they would catch this. Like when we hear the things that Jesus is trying to say, it goes through our mind like, man, I really wish so-and-so would have come today. Or I really hope Adam will really drive into this point. Um, And maybe I will. Send your request to adam at eastsiderlander.com. But the point is, all joking aside, like when we sit under God's word, we are prone to try to get Jesus to prove our point. And maybe, like, this happens with good motives. Like, I trust that it is. Like, I know you guys. Your hearts are good. And you know the things that God says, and you want what's best for one another. But we can come to Jesus, and we can sit under his word, and we can try to use Jesus to prove our point. Which makes me wonder, like, what do we miss? Like, what incredible teaching from God do we miss when we come to Jesus hoping Jesus will say the things we want him to say. Like maybe you have good motives. It was pretty common in those days for the older brother to cook the books to make more money from the inheritance. And so this guy that calls out above the crowd, he may be rightfully in line for more money than he's received. But the point Jesus is saying, like, he says, man, like who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Like, does it look like I'm the civil court trying to settle those kind of disputes. I am here to teach you the deep things of the kingdom of God so that you can be encouraged and inspired and instructed to follow God. And what we're going to see is if we set our mind, like Jesus set his face, to follow God, the rest of life falls into place. The civil disputes, they kind of take care of themselves. The inheritance is divided up fairly and justly because we're following a fair and a just God. What we should set our mind to is simply hear what Jesus has to say. Because I wonder, we're sitting here 2,000 years later and we're thinking, we're reading this text, like how cool would it have been to have been in the crowd hearing Jesus teach these kind of things? Can you imagine, last week we unpacked the, the, uh, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. How cool would it have been to hear the Lord's Prayer flow from Jesus' lips? It would have been in Greek. You wouldn't have understood a word of it. But nonetheless, it would have been cool to hear Jesus teaching on prayer or spiritual warfare when we wrestle with the the attacks of the enemy trying to draw our attention, our focus away from the things that God has set our mind on. Like, that would be cool to hear Jesus teach these things. And here, this man, he's following Jesus. And like, I wonder, like, what did he miss out on? Because in the back of his mind, as he's following Jesus, he was trying to tell Jesus what he wanted him to say. He was following along. Jesus was teaching these incredible things about prayer and spiritual warfare, being in dark places and religion and relationship and with him and all of these things. But the whole time he's following Jesus, in the back of his mind, he's like, man, I hope Jesus gets to that part where he'll tell my brother what I want him to do. I wonder, like, did he hear the Lord's Prayer? Like, did he hear things about spiritual warfare? He had spiritual warfare going on in his own life. Did he hear what Jesus had to say? And I bring that up because as we sit under God's word, God's word is an invitation to hear from God. Like, we don't open the scripture. We don't study God's word hoping to find it will say what we want it to say. When God gave us his word, it is an invitation to know and hear from and experience the living God. And I've spent, if you're like here and you're thinking, I'm not sure about that. I was there. I've been there. I used to, I mean, I, made a li- I make a living out of going to God's word, trying to get it to say what I want to say. But my relationship with God has been completely changed. And I hope it's overflowing into our church and into the work of God is doing in our midst. When I realize, like, it's not my job to go to God's word to tell God what he's supposed to say. It is my job to sit at God's feet 
hear what he says and try to clearly communicate it so his Holy Spirit can convict us to be more like him. In fact, it's, it's so much so changing my life. In our community group, I, I shared with you last week as a group, we're reading through the Gospel of John. And uh, we're reading Luke on, in church on Sunday, so we're trying to kind of supplement that with John and his teaching on theology. We're in John chapter 7 on Wednesday, and this verse just jumped out to me. It says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, we're getting a little off topic, but what Jesus is doing as he's traveling around, he's teaching the people, and in this context, he's teaching religious people. And they're like, I'm not sure if what Jesus is saying is true. And, and what Jesus says to them is like, the reason you're struggling to see that my teaching is from God is because your will, your desire, is not even to do God's will. And it's like this heart posture he communicates when we come to his word. Like, we get the most out of God's word when we come to him looking to see what is God's will. Or the very next chapter, John chapter 8, he said, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And to the religious people who sat in the synagogue every Saturday to hear the teaching of God, he says, the reason why you do not hear them, the word of God, is that you are not of God. And what he's saying is it's so easy, and unfortunately it's possible, to come to God's word, to sit in these seats, to gather for worship, and completely miss the things that God is trying to say. And maybe that lands with you. That, that landed with me in a big way this week. Because this guy is following Jesus, hoping that Jesus will say what he wants him to say. And I wonder what powerful teachings from Jesus he missed because he was trying to use Jesus to prove his point. But here's the thing, this gracious invitation never expires. When we come to Jesus to hear from Jesus, when we come to the word of God to hear from God, he will immediately go to work in our life. Look at the very next verse. Someone in the crowd says, Teacher, tell my brother, divide the inheritance with me. Man, like, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, hold on to that, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So what is Jesus doing? He's not even touching the surface level thing that this man brought to his attention. This guy comes to Jesus and he yells out from the back of the crowd, teacher, father, rabbi, I'm following you. It would be nice if you would tell my brother to give me some more of the inheritance. And Jesus says, you come to me to tell me what you want me to say. Here's what I'm going to say. And he says, not just to the man, he says to them. I don't know who the them is. I think it's probably the man and his brother. That's just my guess. It could have been the crowd at large. But he says to them, you need to be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. Jesus is going, speaking straight to the heart. And what he's saying is he says, your arguing over the inheritance is a symptom of something more significant going on. It's some sin that is gripping your life, and you need to be on guard. You need to be aware of and go to war with this all kinds of covetousness. Your translation may say greed. Covetousness and greed, they're kind of one and the same. The definition is just continually grasping for more in order to obtain happiness. If I could just get more of the inheritance, if I could just make some more money, it, I would be happy. It's making too much of money. Now, I want to be very clear and faithful to the text. It is not making too much money. 
right? That's not covetousness. In fact, when I was typing my notes this week, uh, Google Docs or whatever I was doing online kept auto-correcting. It kept taking the of out and suggesting that it was grammatically incorrect, which it may be. I'm not that great at English, but it was theologically correct. Covetousness, greed, is making too much of money. It is... uh, uh, it is, uh, it is p- making too much of money. It's expecting money to accomplish what only God can provide. And I know that because the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says this to believers gathered to worship God, just like we are. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly. And he's going to tell them to go to war against sin, the things that are separating them from God. These people are following Jesus, but they're flirting with sin. And he said, you've got to go to war against these things. In fact, you've got to put them to death. Sexual immorality. It's another sermon for another day. Impurity, passion, being controlled by whatever comes to mind, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And it's this making too much of money, expecting money um, to accomplish what only God can provide, which ultimately leads us, the reason it's idolatry, Paul says, is because when we expect money to provide what only God can accomplish, it will lead us to live for money or worship money. And not even just money, but coveting anything, expecting anything that we don't have to provide the gap, to fill in the gap that only God can. And so what Paul says and what Jesus is alluding to is this is a heart issue. It's a problem where you're not surrendering your heart. When we come to Jesus from here, from Jesus, he speaks directly to our heart. I love how the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, he says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus has taken this from a, a simple dispute between two brothers, and he's exposing with his word, if they'll tune their ear to hear, a heart issue that is actually a sin issue, which is separating the brothers. It's this, this desire for more. If I could just get more money, if I could just get more inheritance, and his word is, is cutting straight to the heart. And maybe this has been your experience as you've studied God's word. Maybe like you don't have the problem like the brother, but like you know what it's like to come to God's word, and it feels like this ancient word is speaking straight to you. Have you ever had that experience? Just a few weeks ago, before we set into John as a group, I was in the book of Jeremiah in my prayer time. It's this Old Testament book written almost more than 2,600 years ago by a weepy, emotional prophet to the people of Israel ready to head into exile. And I kid you not, every day in this Old Testament book, I am just like cut to the heart. I spend my time with God in prayer and I go to Carissa and she's trying to work and make a living to provide for our family. But I'm like, I've got to tell you what God's saying. She's like, go back to work, Adam. It's like, no, like he's, he's, he's convicted me about who he is and how to lead his people and how to lean in and listen to him and how to, to shepherd and serve the church and serve his people. And she kind of got, I think, tired. I mean, as much as a godly woman would say, kind of tired of hearing about it. Like, she's like, can you just get to the New Testament or something like that? But I hear this from you guys all the time. Like, I get texts and have conversations in the, we don't really have a hallway on that side of the curtain in the lobby space. And, and you're like, I was reading the Psalms this week, and I was convicted of sin and, and these things I needed to do to change my life. It was like the Psalms, like the ancient songs and poems, like, I don't even understand those. And you're reading them in King James. How could you possibly... Yeah, I'm just cut to the heart because God's word, when we come to Jesus to hear from Jesus, will cut straight to the heart. It cuts to the heart, but it also restores the soul. And it begins to sanctify us and draw us closer to the one who can provide what only he can provide. And so as we continue in this text, 
as we continue reading God's word, as you go from here and tomorrow morning you sit with Jesus in his word, like the posture of coming to God to hear from God is the only way we'd be drawn into the presence of a holy God. And so Jesus goes on, he says, and he told them a parable. All right, so the story is kind of unfolding. He's traveling, he's teaching, and someone from the back says, you know, Lord, it'd be nice if you would say what I want you to say. He says, you've got a heart problem here. You've got a sin issue. And I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to tell you a parable, which is just a simple story with a profound spiritual truth packed into it so that you'll understand the heart problem going on. He says this. He says, I told him a parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And they lived in an agricultural society. So he draws to mind a wealthy farmer whose land has produced a good crop. He says, and he thought to himself, the farmer thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul? First of all, I think this is the real sin. This man is referring to himself in the third person, right? Like he's got this wonderful, bountiful crop, and he's sitting there thinking to himself, I'm going to say to my soul, who says that, first of all, soul? And it's like, do you know someone that speaks of themselves or worse, to themselves in the third person? Like, could you be any more obnoxious, right? Like, I just need to hear my name a few more times. So in my own conversation with myself, I'm going to refer to myself as soul? I'm just going to say to myself, anyway, whatever, that's... If it's not sinful, it's stupid. Uh, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This man was full of himself, which is the problem. It is the problem. God gives him a bountiful crop. And the first thing he thinks of is how he's going to use it to make himself more comfortable. Listen to all of the uh, first-person adjectives or personal pronouns or whatever. Again, not great with the English language in this parable. Rich man's crop produced uh, plentifully, and he thought to what? Himself. I thought to himself. So he had this wonderful crop, and he sits with his own thoughts. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will talk to myself in the third person. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. See, covetousness is not making too much money. It's making too much of money. It's, It's expecting money to accomplish things for us that only God can provide. God gives this farmer in this parable an incredible crop. Now, I am not underestimating the man's effort. A farmer, farmers are hard workers. In fact, throughout the rest of Scripture, even the New Testament, we see farmers are like given as an example. People that get to work every day, work their tail off, tilling the ground and planting the seed and watering the dirt. But the best farmer in the world with the most diligent effort cannot force the crop to grow. Like he can get up early, he can go to work, he can work hard, he can go to bed late, he can do everything that God has called him to do, which this man obviously did. But God gives the growth. Growth is a gift from God. And as soon as he gets this gift from God, all he can think about is how to use the gift to glorify and serve himself. That God gave this gift so he could have pleasure. 
which is the fundamental flaw in his focus because the God who gives can always take away. In fact, the very next verse in this parable, but God said to him, fool, I don't know if that's how God said it. Maybe more like Kevin talks. Fool, this night your soul, <laughs> talk about your soul in the third person. This night your soul, I didn't notice that till now, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? These big barns and all this crop, who's going to get it the moment your soul's required? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, if you think that seems harsh, just remember this is just a parable. Like Jesus wasn't quoting something that happened, but he's using it to make the point that when you make yourself the main point, like you're, you're, you're being foolish. We're being foolish. When we put our uh, trust for joy and security and happiness and fulfillment in himself and his stuff, instead of putting it in God, the God who gives us stuff, like that is foolish. And we're like, we look at this through 2,000 years of history, we're like, yeah, what a fool, but like we can do the same thing. We can spend all of our time and all of our energy and all of our effort just trying to make more, thinking that when we make more or get more or accumulate more, like we'll be happy. Um, I was thinking about this. I, I was trying to illustrate just like the foolishness of it. I was thinking about several, several years ago when we had a series of hurricanes come through Central Florida, like 2004, I was in high school, like one after another. You remember those if you're a native Floridian and knocked the power out for many days and we were like desperate for something to do. And so for like the first time in my life and the last time in my life, I played Monopoly. You ever played the game Monopoly? I never have the patience for not Monopoly because it takes like six hours to play a game, but we had six days with no power. So sure, why not? And so we were playing Monopoly. I remember kind of learning how it went the first game, losing, learning the second game. But like finally I figured out I am going to get, I'm going to do all of my energy and all of my effort focused on getting just one side of the board. So that way, you know, I might bleed some cash for a little while, but when I get that board or side of the board and the hotels, like all the things there, whenever someone rounds that board, you know, I'm going to take them for all their words. And so that was my strategy. And I won, again, probably the last time I've ever played Monopoly. Like, I won. I remember being so excited because I had robbed my family of all this fake money. And it's like, I didn't think through the fact that we had to spend six more days together with no power. I shouldn't make an enemy. Um, but nonetheless, like, I, I had accumulated all the money. And then, I, like, a life lesson. I don't even think it was intentional. My mom just kind of packed all this stuff up. And she said, good job. And she put all the stuff back in the box and put it back on the shelf. I was like, man, I put all six hours of energy and effort into accumulating these things and it all just goes back in the box and that's kind of silly a little sad when it's monopoly money but that's super foolish when we live our life in that direction again it's not making too much money but it's making too much of money that we're going to put all of our energy and all of our effort into something that can be taken away at a moment's notice the book of ecclesiastes later or earlier on would say that like when you pass away everything is just passed on like, you don't get to take any of it with you, and yet still, even my, like, we strive, we strive for more, thinking it will fill a gap that only God can fill. The question we have to ask is, like, are we rich toward God? What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Jesus says to his disciples, verse 22, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Jesus is stepping away from the crowd, and he's focusing on his disciples to explain what this looks like, where the 30,000 view of covetousness meets our own individual lives. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more valuable are you than the birds? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, the most profound and prolific king in all of Israel, and all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows you need them. And we could spend a lot of time kind of picking apart these verses, but the gist of it is, like Jesus says, in, in, in rela- relation to covenants, he goes on to his disciples, he says, like, where this starts to hit our life, it's like, don't even be anxious. Don't be anxious about where you're going to make more money, or don't be anxious about where you're going to, you know, find food or clothing, because God knows you need those things. Covenants leads to anxious, anxiousness because we become preoccupied in our mind. We preoccupy our mind with all of the things we need as if those things are satisfying. And the pursuit of them and them alone can become overwhelming. It's an indication that we have put, our anxiety is an indication that we've put our trust in the things that God gives instead of the God who gives graciously. He says, this is common in the world. In verse 30, he said, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. Your father knows you need them. And then in verse 31, I think Jesus lands the plane where he would cut us all to the heart. He says, instead, meaning like it's common to be anxious about many things. It's common to worry about what you're going to eat, where you're going to make money, where you're going to buy clothes, how you're going to add some time to your life. He says, the world worries about that. Your father knows you need them. Instead, seek first his kingdom and these things will be added to you. He says, instead, set your mind on, strive for the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God in your life. Seek God in these things, these things that you long for, provision and happiness and joy and security, even the resources you need to clothe yourself will be added to you as well. It's what sets us apart from the rest of the world. The rest of the world is up all night worrying about what God's going to provide, but God knows we need them. He says, instead, just set your face towards God. Follow him, seek him, strive for him in the very real ways, in, in very real ways in your life, the, the, the everyday moments of life, and he will take care of the rest. It doesn't mean you don't work like a, like a raven or uh, the farmer, but God is the one who provides. In fact, he provides generously. He says, verse 32, fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's not just that God knows we need these things. It is, gives him pleasure to give these things. I try so hard not to use our two-and-a-half-year-old daughter as a sermon illustration because someday she's going to grow up and you guys are going to know way more about her than she can remember. But I can't help when I watch her her to realize what it must look like in some way when God watches me. Because she's two and a half years old. I'm less mature in God's eyes, I think, than she is. But she's old enough now that she is very particular. I don't know where she gets that from. Very particular about all kinds of things. Like when mealtime comes, she wants mac and cheese, but she wants it in a certain shape. Unicorn mac and cheese. When she gets dressed of the day, she wants to wear certain shoes. It kind of drives me nuts. And she gets all worked up over it. And like the days that her mother is working and I'm responsible for dressing her, I have no hope. There's like these little fits and things. But she's just so particular about getting things the way she wants them. I was thinking about like she has no idea the resources available to her. 
Like she's so anxious, she gets so worked up if she gets a little bit hungry, she has no idea that there is a pantry and a refrigerator that are at her disposal if she would just ask. She gets so worked up over the clothes she's going to wear. It's like there is a closet full of clothes and then there are boxes of other clothes. Like there are ample clothes and shoes for you to wear. She gets so nervous about getting things. as like she has resources beyond her wildest imagination at her disposal. Now, not resources beyond your wild imagination. She is a pastor's kid after all. But this two-and-a-half-year-old girl, resources beyond her wildest imagination, that anything she could imagine and more could be hers. And it gives her dad good pleasure to see her joyful. Like, it just, I, I, I would... If Carissa wasn't renting me in, we would have no resources because I would just get her all this. She walks in and sees a stuffed animal. Carissa's like, we have 1,700 stuffed animals at home. Do not buy that. But it gives me good pleasure. It gives me good pleasure. And so it is with God. It gives him good pleasure not to just to give us things, but to give us the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God in our life. Sometimes that looks like bountiful blessings. Some of you guys have been bountifully blessed, and it's impressive to watch you leverage your resources for the kingdom of God. It is so humbling to see. Sometimes it is just simply finding contentment, but it's always found in the form of a rich relationship with God. And I think that's the point. You get this guy on the outskirts of the crowd. He yells, Jesus, please tell my brother. I want him to do this. You should use your authority to tell him. And Jesus gets here. He says, instead, don't worry about those kind of things. Seek his kingdom. Set your face towards God and invite his reign and rule. Fear not, little flock, for it is your what? Your father's good pleasure. There is a relationship with God. It's not just a bunch of rules. Jesus trying to settle civil disputes. He is inviting us into a relationship with him. And he spared no expense inviting us into that relationship. There's a verse you're probably familiar with in John chapter 3, verse 16. Um, we just read as a community group a couple last week, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that, we don't have time for it today, but that eternal life, that's not just heaven. I think we think about that. That's maybe how I was taught growing up, or at least my understanding. God so loved the world that he gave Jesus so you could have heaven someday. No, no, no. God loved you so much, he gave his only son so that you can have eternal life today so that you can have the fullness of life today. And I could teach it, and I could point to it in Scripture, but you don't realize how great a blessing that is until you experience it. I know, because I sat in churches, pews, not chairs like this, for a long time, and did not realize that that invitation started now. But God spared no expense. He gave the most valuable thing to him to make it possible. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul says this. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's the Father's good pleasure to extend an invitation to the kingdom of God. If you want any proof for what, it's, what you are worth to God, he gave his son so that you could have a relationship with him. So the question then is, what do we do? I may have led, misled Nikki a little bit on how to, we'll, we'll wrap this up quickly. Um, Fear not, little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give the kingdom of God. Like, that is the gospel. He gave his son to extend an invitation to the kingdom. Sell your possessions. He takes kind of a hard right turn. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We could 
we could spend some time here, but here's what I want to, I want to illustrate that for you, that God wants to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. Now I am as far from a prosperity preacher as you'll ever find because I have experienced firsthand the heartache and the hardship and the spiritual warfare of walking close hand, closely with Jesus. Some of you have experienced immeasurably more. But God wants to do immeasurably more than we could ever begin to ask or imagine. And Carissa and I, our story, we share a little bit every week. If I've shared it once, I've shared it a hundred times, but it's the only story we have. And ultimately, God gets glory. Like we were serving a church that we loved and cherished, people, friends. So we thought we would be there forever. And God just graciously, as we began to lean in, showed us there's more. Not more in the form of another church, but there is more in the form of fullness in relationship with Jesus. Something that I had heard taught, I had heard preached, but I really had never experienced for myself, even as a preacher. As we leaned in, as we fasted and we prayed, we felt the call to plant the church. We thought, like, what's what's this church going to be about? And we just simply began looking at our life and our prayer journals and things. And we said, we want to lead others, like anyone that had listened to experience immeasurably more. And the way you do that is you exchange the common, which is worrying, being anxious, and coveting, thinking, if I can just get some more money, if I can just get some more food, if I can just get some more land, if I can just get some bigger house, even, even like if I can just get into a relationship, things will be good. I want to exchange that which is common for that which is holy because God can do immeasurably more. And so we laid out a, a list of core values that we wanted to shape who we are as a people of God. And these were not aspirational values. These weren't things we hoped our church would live up to. I'm not smart enough for that. So we just began looking back at the story of what God has done for us. And we began seeing what were the common themes that continue to simmer to the surface? How did God lead us from people who loved him, but were really living in relationship in religion more than a relationship with a father who is good and gracious? to people to experience immeasurably more. And we just started writing them down. And so the first thing we did is we leaned in. It took a lot of pain and heartache to get us there, but we leaned in and we spent time listening to what God had to say, just showing up at his word with no expectations, fasting and praying and said, God, please just make yourself known to us. We leaned in and then we took action, not necessarily because I wanted to, but because God called us to. And so we started following him. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. We started to expect miracles because we saw God do things that no one else could explain. He gave us a baby when the doctor said there was no chance. We saw him draw a church together, saw people give their life to Jesus. So we lean in, we take action, we expect miracles. And then the next value is we live open-handed lives. I think that is where God is leading us in this teaching on covetousness. Like live open-handed lives. Like don't hold tightly to the things that God gave you to steward for his glory. And I'll be honest, I'm really, really good at leaning in. I'm better than Carissa at it, but she is exponentially better at living an open-handed life. She's generous. Sometimes I think she's too generous, but she said, we want to be people that give generously give to those in need, give to the church. And so we always tithe with 10% off the top. But she said, I want to give more. I want to give more. And God seemed to reward it. Like he always provided for us. There were seasons that were lean, but we always had enough. There were seasons that we had more than enough and she just kept giving it away. As we shared last year, Carissa lost her job completely out of the blue. And I panicked. My heart broke for her because the way she was treated, but I panicked. How are we going to live on one income? I am a pastor after all. Like, uh, I don't know. I started looking jobs like public Chick-fil-A. Someone else will hire me, right? And she came home and we talked about the situation. And she said, the first thing, I kid you not, she said, we're not going to adjust our tithe. And I got the Bible out. I said, Chris, I can show you where you're right. We're not going to adjust our tithe. The tithe is 10% of anything we make. Now we're going to give 10% of what I make because you no longer make what you used to make. And she said, no, 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 no. 
we're confident as we lean in and take action, expect miracles, that I have been called to serve the church on a macro scale. And we serve it on a micro scale. I don't mean the size of our church. We serve it here at the local church, but she gets the privilege and she feels called to serve the church all around the country. And she got to do that in her former job and now do it her next job. And I said, okay, we'll do it for a few months and we'll see. So we gave a double tithe, 20%, and it, it was hard. But in three months, she got called to an organization that serves more churches, that makes more money, that has a greater impact, serving the kingdom on a macro scale, serving some of the nation's largest churches. She got a, a job that was a promotion. She got a raise that was substantial, which is good because, again, she's married to a pastor. But she continued to say, we're not going to tithe. We're going to live open-handed lives. And I say this because I want you to see that what starts at 30,000 feet, it comes down to our everyday life when we lean in, take action, expect miracles, and live open-handed lives. God has been so good to Carissa and I. We were evaluating our budget again. And of course, every time I invite Carissa into that conversation, she wants to give more. We've had the privilege, the privilege, because we live open-handed lives, to watch the, the resources God has given us fund ministry, fund change lives. And I'll tell you what, we've never gone without. God continues to provide. Here's what I want to say. Carissa didn't just say, I want to give generously. I don't want to touch the tithe um, because she knew that was what she was supposed to do. She said that because she knew she'd spent enough time with Jesus that she knew she was called to serve the church on a macro scale. And if God called her to that, he would provide the means for that. So when we walk close enough with Jesus to hear where he is calling us and he gives us good gifts, bountiful gifts, and we hold those with an open-handed life, we can watch him multiply them. And whether that looks like rich resources, blessing of resources, or just enough to get by, here's a promise from 2 Peter. He says this, His divine power, God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, that God will give you everything you need to be who he has called you to be. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is to sit under your teaching, that the authority of your word that was preached with confidence to the crowds in the, in the first century would transform our hearts in the 21st century. Lord, we gather week in and week out as your people to sing songs of praise, but God, I pray that you would go to work in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would work with your Holy Word, that he would convict us of sin, that he would cut away the parts of our heart and our life, the desires, that longing for more that is keeping us from intimacy and the fullness of a relationship with our Heavenly Father. But God, I also pray that you would work through your Word to restore our soul, that as you convict us cut us, that you would repair us and restore us, and you would give us everything as you promised that we need for life and godliness, that we might walk out of here uh, looking more like you than when we arrived. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that's heard this message 500 times that have never put their faith in Jesus, that today they would find someone, stop at the next station, next step station on the way out and just say, I want to know more. I want to know how I can experience what I've heard so much about. Father, your Holy Spirit would go to work in us and that he would overflow through us, that we might be a part of transforming the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.